the relationship between athletes and cannabis has long been decried for its perceived negative association. Thankfully, that misconception is being reshaped as athletes are now experiencing a certain form of liberation, one which has inspired them to move from the shadows and serve as advocates for the medicine that they deem so vital. These stories are worthy of greater attention and will serve to help augment the discourse around medicinal cannabis. The cannabis culture and sport deserves to be celebrated, not maligned. And these conversations will move us in that direction. Welcome to Winning with Cannabis with your host, Bill Bronner. Welcome to Winning with Cannabis. This is your host, Bill Bronner. I am excited to introduce you to um, an individual who uh, I'm lucky enough to have met before. And uh, now I have the opportunity to delve a little bit deeper into um, who he is and what his, what his personal story is all about. Um, that is Frank Shamrock, who for some of you, um, especially UFC fans out there, have a very clear knowledge of uh, his achievements in the, in the in the world of fighting. He is uh, now retired, but a four-time defending and undefeated champion. Um, Frank was formerly ranked number one pound for pound, the greatest UFC fighter in the world during his reign as UFC middleweight champion, and has won countless other titles and in, in other martial arts organizations, and uh, has a resume that is uh, pardon the pun, frankly, second to none. So, Frank, welcome to the program. Right on. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, so, on our program, as you may well know, we've been um, having many different kind of highbrow conversations with athletes who are leading uh, cannabis into the mainstream. And I know that you have played a very important role in, in doing that as, uh, as an advocate. Um, so... I want to find out first off, uh, before we get into kind of that aspect of your life, how you came into fighting and um, kind of from the from the beginning, uh, what sort of ambitions you had in your youth and um, yeah, just kind of how you evolved into um, you know, kind of the fighting career that you that you had so successfully. For sure. Yeah, well, it was always a childhood uh, dream of mine to become a champion, a sports champion. And at the time, boxing was the uh, was the sport of the day. So I assumed I would be a, a, a world champion boxer. Um, but my life took a different path. I became a ward of the state when I was uh, 12 years old. And I was taken from my parents' home and lived in group homes, foster homes, and, and um, youth institutions. And um, I uh, progressed that all the way until I went to youth prison when I was 18 years old. And then uh, I transferred myself to adult prison. And it was in there that I realized I'd kind of screwed my life up. And through uh, having a good mentor and a father figure, um, a new sport happened to emerge. And he advised me to go into it. I was Bob Shamrock. And so I uh, committed my life to, uh, to martial arts. And uh, ironically, my dream come true. I became a world champion and I was able to use that um, that desire to be a leader and, and a champion to apply it to a brand new sport. And I uh, traveled overseas, became a champion there, and then traveled back and uh, made my money here in the United States. Really interesting. I want to take a few steps back and uh, shine a bit of a brighter light um, back in, in your youth and you portrayed what seems to be a, a fairly unstable situation and this state, if I understand correctly, uh, due to maybe parents that were unfit, 
uh, decided to shift you from that environment? Is that basically what happened? Yeah, kind of. I, I, I made a sort of a commitment to, um, to climb actually. It was, um, you know, the first time I ever left my home, I was 11 and, uh, I had thrown rocks at a train. I was just, uh, you know, my house, you could wake up in the morning and leave. And the only rule was you had to come home before the sunset. And that where was, was it. Uh, um, sorry to interrupt you, Frank. Where, where was this geographically? Where'd you grow up? Oh, I grew up in uh, Anderson, California, which is in uh, uh, Northern California, uh, kind of right above the Central Valley. And um, so, yeah, I was in uh, Anderson, California, a very small rural uh, farming town. And a population of about, I would say, 3,000 back then. That's really small. Um, very small. Yeah, I was one of the only brown kids in the town. And I was, uh, you know, just kind of like a, you know, we were allowed to just sort of run wild. And uh, <laughs> so on one of my running wild days, um, I was down with another friend behind the supermarket complex where they had a little creek. And the creek where... Um, you know, crawdads and snakes and sort of all this stuff that a boy loves to do. And I was out, you know, catching all that and sort of wasting the day away uh, when a train went by. It was a small train trestle that went above this uh, little creek area. And I just picked up some rocks. I threw them at the train. I didn't even think twice about it. Uh, It wasn't something I'd done before, but it seemed like a great idea at the time. Uh, but the result was uh, about uh, three or four police officers in uh, cars rolled up a few minutes later, and uh, and they arrested me. And that was the very first time that I'd ever left my household, like overnight. And that was the 10 days that I spent in juvenile hall. And it was there when I started talking to the other kids about, um, you know, things were happening in my house and that I was being locked in closets and made to live in the backyard and you know, made to live in a tool shed and all these sort of what were normal circumstances to me. And, um, you know, I still remember to this day, these, these kids were like, you know, that's, that's not right. Uh, the bad kids began to explain to me how um, it was basically child abuse and you can't really do that. And so it was the first time I realized I was living in a, a dysfunctional home and that I was suffering from abuse. And, um, you know, I had a, a counselor at the uh, juvenile hall, and she was very clear that if I kept committing these crimes, they would take me from my home. And I thought that was uh, a sign from God. I thought that was a message that I needed to keep committing crimes so I could get out of my home. And so that's, that's pretty much what I did. So given the, the climate that you were in, um, it obviously was, it was unstable, it was about as far from what many might view as, as regular and the conditions that you just described were pretty subhuman. I mean, quite appalling, if you don't mind me saying. I can't help but think that you were able to channel a lot of the anger that emerged from that experience to your advantage while in prison um, in your teens. And you know, a, a lot of the kind of the, the darker periods of your life were able to kind of open up a new door for you, one that um, you could be in control of and you could, um, you know, start to evolve from it. Yeah, well, it was really, I mean, I was not a good kid by any means. Um, And I really learned through, 
having a good mentor and a good father figure. When I was um, 13, I went to the Shamrock Boys Ranch, and Bob Shamrock was my first, you know, real group home mentor dad who had a great, you know, way with boys and a way with with teaching and educating and, and, and guiding. And so, you know, even though I messed that up and I ended up continuing on in an in institution, uh, the principles and stuff that he taught me and the way he taught me to be a man and the leadership skills that he taught me, you know, when I woke up in prison, I realized I was stuck there and I really screwed my life up. Those were the principles that I committed to. And those were the things that, you know, sort of, allowed me to get my mind together and my emotions together. But past that, um, you know, I recommend this to anybody. If you have emotional uh, unbalances and, and discomfort, try cage fighting because it's a wonderful outlet for <laughs> expressing your emotional capacity um, and working through those, you know, overpowering emotions. My problem was I didn't know these things were wrong that was happening to me. And they made me very angry and they made me very upset. And it made me very emotionally fragile. And so, you know, even though I go out for sports and I go out for all these different activities and I was a great athlete, I could never get past the first week or so that have some sort of emotional breakdown or someone would, you know, bully me or challenge me. And, and I didn't know how to respond to those things. Um, but it was the time, you know, in prison, just reading, focusing on with the college. When I was in prison, I became a trainer. Uh, for the fire crews, you know, I really learned about lifting weights and sort of building up my body and, and you know, that base, you know, I spent three and a half years from uh, 18 to 21 and that base of training and learning is what carried me through that fighting career. I feel like your story is, is exceptional in so many ways, Frank. When people think of the um, prison system in general and the type of rehabilitation that is supposed to um, be present in those, um, you know, kind of w w within those physical barriers. Seldom does it, I think at least are, are positive stories that come from that sort of rehabilitation. Uh, they, you know, the recidivism rate in America is what it is. Yours is quite remarkable in that you used it to your advantage, and were able to set a tone for yourself going forward, and um, you know, make a complete reversal. Uh, real quickly, we got to take a commercial break, and I want to continue a little bit further down on the path that we're on. Our advertisers are winners. Please check them out during this brief timeout. Doc Rob, the concierge for better living. My guests say Razzie Berry. We're talking about nature, naturopathic medicine, as well as the concept of prevention and preventing disease. Empower people to live a naturopathic lifestyle. Get to know your body, understand its rhythms, remove toxins, and use natural alternatives whenever possible. 90 to 95% of cancers are due to environment and lifestyle risk factors. I mean, that's a huge number. That means that cancer is preventable. The Concierge for Better Living with Doc Rob. Only on CannabisRadio.com. Elevate your every day with that Shuggies feeling. With the sweet taste of Shuggies. Add a cup of Shuggies to your morning coffee. Ah, how sweet it is. Shuggies infuses cannabis and cane sugar to make it the perfect sweetener with benefits. Make your happy hour happier with a dunk of Shuggies in your drink. 
Order your Shuggies now at S-H-O-O-G-I-E-S dot com or find it in dispensaries throughout California. Whenever you crave a little sweet, pick up Shuggies, the sweet, sweet, take-anywhere treat. Let me welcome Nick Hexum from 311. We've never heard things like your music when it first came out. It's like to mix the reggae with the punk and all of that together was just such an unusual sound and, and we loved it. We realized we're not going to copy what's on the radio. At the time, it was all grunge at, that was on the radio. And I said, let's just stick to what we know and wait for a culture to come around to us. Hey, it's Nick Hexum from 311, and you're listening to Cannabis Confidential with Dr. Dina on CannabisRadio.com. We're back on the field of play with more Winning with Cannabis, only on CannabisRadio.com. Frank, you were in the process of explaining uh, your experience in prison, and you said you departed when you were 21. And in in the process of being there, obviously, you were able to go through this wonderful period of of self-discovery. Unfortunately, it happened under, you know, far from perfect circumstances, that is being in prison. But again, you used it to your advantage and... Um, you're able to position yourself in a stronger way going forward. So when did you finally take your first um, opportunity for a professional fight after polishing your skills um, in prison? Well, I'd like to say they were polished, but they weren't. Um, I, I got out April 5th of 1994. I went into training camp uh, April 6th of 1994. And then within six months, I was living in Japan and training for my fight, which happened December 18th uh, of 1994. So it was a very quick turnaround um, to becoming a professional fighter. In fact, I went to Japan on parole because at that time, the sport didn't exist in the United States. And so I was breaking all kinds of social, uh, social norms. Um, but I was a great athlete. And I was very, very focused from, from after my spending that time in prison and just my desire to turn my life around. I'd had a young son at the time and I really felt this, you know, this commitment to being a father and sort of, you know, trying to become a normal human being, even though I was, you know, fighting internationally. Um, and then, you know, I ended up fighting Boss Rutten in my very first fight and uh, pretty much you know, overnight became famous in Japan. Mm-hmm. And then the, 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 your uh, first foray into the UFC, and forgive me, I don't have a, a good historical understanding as to when the UFC um, was finally created, but I do know that it, at least in my eyes, and I'm sure yours as well, that there's some pretty striking parallels between the emergence of the UFC, of the UFC and the popularity of cannabis and that they're both fairly new movements that are, have once been on the fringes and now are enjoying some mainstream acceptance. When that first, uh, first start with you. Yeah. Well, um, so I went into the UFC in 1997. And so I got, you know, became champion. I got some fights. I kind of had my career going. Um, 
and how I just figured it, out. Or, I'm sorry to interrupt. How, how long had the UFC been in existence up until 97? Did it, is it still a shirt? Not, like, they started in 93. Okay. And so they had just kind of gotten going and it actually peaked in popularity at the time and was on a rapid uh, decline because their initial marketing was that one, you know, will enter, one man will leave, something will probably die. They had a very edgy marketing um, and it, it ended up turning around and biting him in the butt. And when I came into the sport, it had actually been kicked off of cable. And it was, you know, at the time, its smallest audience uh, that existed because they were only on satellite. Um, so it was a weird time where all the world records and things that I did sort of, you know, were kind of hidden. Um, but at the same time, you know, within over those three years, you know, I quickly discovered that the amount of contact, the amount of pain, the amount of fear that went into preparing for these matches, um, you know, it was just overwhelming. And, the, you know, the common supplement, the common medicine was painkillers. Um, and I didn't like the way they made me feel. I didn't like, you know, uh, the way they made my head feel, you know, the, the lethargy that came from it. Like, just the whole thing I felt was really bad. Um, and I was always a recreational cannabis consumer. So, you know, I just was experimenting with medicines and strains. And I realized that cannabis was by far the best medicine for what I was doing. And then I quickly realized that a lot of people inside of that industry, inside of the specific martial arts, um, you know, they were consuming it as well because, you know, it's a nutrition-based sport, you're always in pain. And then you're always laying there thinking, I'm going to fight in a cage tomorrow. And that's really stressful. You're always looking for a way to calm yourself down and sort of, you know, have a nice homeostasis. It's, it's interesting because I, I view UFC as uh, very much being at the forefront in terms of uh, accepting CBD and marijuana, which just happened, you know, for for their athletes. I think roughly two years ago, right? Mm-hmm. But up until that point, it had been, you know, kind of scorned, and you know, fines had been levied, suspensions, whether it be Nate Diaz or others, had been applied. Why do you think it took so long? Knowing, as you mentioned that, uh, you know, cannabis was widespread in terms of usage. Um, and I think, you know, folks at the top uh, seem to, at least in the media, had been, you know, talking about warmly embracing it and, um, you know, working to integrate it. Why do you think it took so long to, to finally come around and uh, kind of normalize things? I think it's pure economics. You know, same reason why even though cannabis oil protects the neuroprotectant, you can't use it in the NFL. You know, at a larger scale, um, you know, it's federally illegal. So when you're looking for bank money, when you're looking for, um, you know, large corporate partners, it's just not, and certainly wasn't at the time, you know, something that was acceptable. Um, you know, we've moved a lot, lot further since then. I was going to say, I think one of the chief sponsors is a cannabis company for the UFC. Well, yeah, now, now it's fantastic. Yeah, now they've made a, you know, they've really moved into it. I think at the time, you know, the, the Fertitas were very sharp business people, and they looked at this like a sports league. And in building a league, you know, it was very essential. I mean, we were already on the fringe. So it was really important, I believe, that we stayed, you know, very sporting and very, 
you know, it's by the book as we could. And I was there in the dark ages when, you know, we, we were kicked off a of cable. We didn't have weight classes. We didn't have rules. And, you know, I was hired by the first UFC to go out and talk to the cable companies, to explain to them, you know, the basis of the sport. And, you know, they didn't want to hear it because, you know, it looks, you know, brutal. It looks, and, you know, society at the time just didn't, hadn't seen that before. Do you think uh, Nate deserves a, a fair amount of buying pressure in the ways that he was able to, to do so pretty skillfully? I mean, the optics of you know, smoking CBD shortly after um, one of his triumphs, obviously it created quite a frenzy um, across the entire media landscape. But it seemed to, you know, really intensify the debate and force the hand of, you know, those in executive positions at the UFC to maybe accelerate their thinking. And I know, I think it was in 2016, they uh, started to embark on some sort of kind of scientific collaboration with Aurora in Edmonton to, you know, make some pretty serious moves in terms of integrating this sport and, um, you know, uh, removing the, the, the punishment side of things. Yeah, I, I think both the Diaz brothers deserve a, a, a tremendous, you know, nod for their support, uh, you know, just because of, of how public and how visible they were. And then, you know, also the power that they ended up having from their success as athletes. You know, they were able to force that hand and they were able to bring, you know, attention into that area. That's what it really takes. You know, if all the NFL guys stood up and said, hey, this is what we need to protect our brain, it would be a different conversation inside these leagues. Um, and many of them are scared. Many of them are told not to. Um, in fact, most of them are told not to, uh, because it's not, it's not okay yet. And we're just getting ready to cross that threshold. Got it. We got a quick commercial break, Frank, and then we're going to, uh, resume the conversation. Our advertisers are winners. Please check them out during this brief timeout. Dazed and infused. Join sugar industry expert Latham Woodward for a happier hour each week for a lively and often hilarious discussion on the infusion of cannabis into food, beverages, and life. Explore exciting new culinary landscape trends with fascinating friends and guests who are leading the industry into the uncharted mainstream. Discover curated menus, enhanced cocktails, and live tastings. Life's a little sweeter here on Dazed and Infused. Hey, take a look at this. They're selling smart pots. They have pot that can make you smart? Where is it? Not that kind of pot. Smart pots are the best aeration container to grow your plants. Check this out. This is the original fabric container for faster producing, healthier plants. They're made with a superior fabric that delivers high yields. Plus, smart pots are reusable and sustainable, so you can use them over and over again, no matter if you use them indoor or outdoor. That's very smart, but how good are they for the environment? Smart pots are BPA-free and lead-free, so you'll always be able to ensure a pure, clean grow, and they're 100% made in the U.S. Over 28 million smart pots have already been sold, so it seems like a smart investment. Look for smart pots in close to 2,000 garden centers throughout North America and ask for the original fabric container. Find a store near you or order yours online at smartpots.com.
The cannabis industry is growing almost as fast as the cannabis and hemp being planted and harvested. Where, when, and how fast will the cannabis and hemp industries continue to climb? Who will be the people leading the charge into that promised land of profit? Let's pursue those answers and more with the Plant Profits. Welcome to another episode of Plant Profits. I am Bert Miller, your host. As you guys know, the purpose of this show is to introduce you to some of the most forward-thinking executives and companies in the cannabis industry. Plant Profits, only on CannabisRadio.com. We're back on the field of play with more Winning with Cannabis, only on CannabisRadio.com. So, Frank, I want to shift gears a little bit and, and talk a little bit about your career um, out of the ring, because I know you've made a sizable impact, um, I'm sure, in a whole host of different worlds, but specifically in the world of cannabis in terms of being a, uh, an agent of change, if you will, in terms of as far as destigmatizing, um, you know, kind of prevailing opinions and playing a, a pretty major role in terms of educating the public, to which I want to applaud you um, for those efforts. How did you kind of get into kind of that next chapter of your life from going from uh, a user into being uh, an outright uh, proponent in a, in a very kind of public-facing way? Yeah, I mean, it was, a, to be honest with you, it was a big decision uh, for my brand and, and for my business. Um, and when the, you know, the, the whole team weighed in on, cause at the time I was a sports broadcaster for Showtime, which is, a, as you know, a CBS company. Um, so it was a lot of consideration and to me vocalizing, um, you know, what I was doing. Uh, and, you know, but, but from a personal standpoint, you know, after I'd learned all the science and one of the things, the joys of retirement is you get all this time on your hands. So I, you know, I studied a lot about uh, cannabinoids and, and how, you know, they affect the brain. And, you know, unwittingly, I realized I had been protecting my brain and my body all these years. Um, but then the science was, was now, you know, front and center. And so much like I did in my fighting career, I leaned into the science of it and, and used that as a platform because I thought it was important. And then when you study the history of legal, you know, illegalization for cannabis, you're deeply tied into racism and culturalism and immigration and it really has very little to do with medicine and so that to me seemed like a social injustice you know good medicines out there that were a natural medicine that were being ignored um because of you know marketing and because of you know outside opinions and and outside interests and i'm a big you know, because of the way I grew up, a big proponent of social justice. So I felt like it was time for me to use my voice and the platform that I built, you know, to help educate people and to help move, you know, move the needle forward. Um, and, you know, with that said, one of, one of my mentors is 76 years old. And 10 years ago, he would have said, I'll never touch that stuff in my life. And now he's an active consumer for his uh, diabetes and for his pain and for his skin issues and um, you know, over the 10 years, he's completely seen the value of the medicine and his life has changed for the better. So if I can do that, you know, with one person as a friend of mine, you know, imagine what I can do with my voice and my platform, you know, for millions of people. Absolutely. I love when things like that come full circle. So I'm curious, how have you taken that passion that you just articulated so well 
and steered it towards entrepreneurial projects because I know you've been <clears throat> operating in the in the industry now for for several years. Um, tell us a little bit about that voyage. Yeah, well, for sure. I, I you know as soon as I got into it, of course, I also saw the monetary side. You said social opportunity. There's tremendous monetary upside, especially being a celebrity and being at the beginning or the front of the industry. Um, and like I said, I, I, I lean into the science of the whole thing. So um, I've been creating and formulating for the past several years, um, you know, a, a small handful of products that are basically, you know, medicine, doctor approved, tested medicine. Uh, and that's where Israel is so far ahead of us and, you know, other countries that are really studying uh, the medicinal side of it. So I have an eye drop that I'm coming out with and a soap for relaxation and a skin cream that basically will cure anything on your skin. Uh, and that's what my mentor is using, Henry. Um, but it's been a long process because it's an unregulated industry. It's hard to find quality partners, real business people. It's very similar to mixed martial arts was, you know, when people didn't know how to fight and when there was a lot of mystery and mystique and, and secrets around the game. Clearly, it's still kind of a Wild West sort of situation, but I'd, I'd like to think, and that's the optimist in me, Frank, that that situation is starting to mature a little bit, and the cannabis industry is developing a little bit more of a professional flavor, dare I say, kind of a savvy to it. Um, you know, policies are starting to change, real money's being applied to it, and folks who have long been naysayers are starting to see the light, so... Um, I'd like to believe that, you know, the future is quite bright and it seems like, um, it seems like that's the case, at least based on some of the trends that we've been uh, enjoying in recent years. Uh, want to quickly call attention to this upcoming event because it sounds terrific. Your, uh, your charity, the Shamrock Way Bipolar Rock and Bowler. Uh, shed some light on that. For sure. Yeah. Well, I made a movie last year about one of my colleagues, uh, Mauro Ranallo, who has bipolar disorder. And the film was called Bipolar Rock and Roller. And that was his that was his moniker when he was a DJ. Now he's a sports broadcaster and the de facto voice for combat sports. But after we made the movie, um, you know, we made sure to put in there besides his story of triumph, you know, real care items, like how you care for someone with severely mentally ill. And we partnered with a few of the largest, you know, educators in the United States for mental illness and, and community care providers. And, and that film has become this kind of de facto educational film for bipolar. Uh, and then one of our donors saw the film and they re he recently had a psychotic break, ended up in a mental institution. And, you know, he was very wealthy. He was going to basically check out of society until he saw this film. And instead of checking out, he decided to take the path of social activism. So he's financed this bipolar rock and bowler event and become our annual fundraiser that we use to raise funds for our charity, which supports at-risk communities, youth, women, and veterans at risk. And it's basically a giant party. It's the 24th of February in Brooklyn, New York at the Brooklyn Bowl. And it's live music and dancing and uh, just, just awesome fun. Uh, we're going to make it our annual event. And then, my brother passed away last year and passed away from suicide. And so Sorry we always, that. We, thank you. And we, we created a grant for him each year for a veteran who was an artist, uh, a veteran's family. And this year we're providing that grant to the Lamphere family, 
And their husband, who was a military veteran as well, also committed suicide, leaving behind a family of two children and one is disabled. So we're creating a, a grant for them to get a disabled van and just to have support, you know, as they transition from having a leader uh, guiding their family to not. And, you know, we're very proud to play that role and to support them and support all veterans. And that's, that's what we do with the Shamrock Way. And that's all from Bob Shamrock and what he taught me and those principles that I followed when I was in prison and the way I run my businesses. And, and we run that, you know, nonprofit solely in his honor. What a, what a wonderful model to, uh, to implement. I, I praise you greatly uh, for, um, you know, stepping into the spotlight and wrestling with you know, some of these thorny issues such as mental health. It, um, it's something that doesn't get enough attention and clearly is deserving of more. So I, I praise you for doing that. And um, to a to similar degree, cannabis as well. Uh, so you're, uh, you're, you're obviously involved in a lot of really terrific uh, endeavors and it, uh, it's heartening to know that there's people out there like you doing such good things on behalf of, um, for the betterment of society. So thank you, Frank. Well, I'm happy to do it. Thanks for joining our program. My pleasure. The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without proper consent of CannabisRadio.com is prohibited.